I want to begin my remarks this evening with a couple quick exercises, surveys really. So first, at the count of three, I would like for everyone to say the name of our synagogue. Ready? One, two, three. All right. Now who said Shari Zedek? You have to raise your hand. I know some of you did. Shari Zedek? Shari Zedek? And the famous Shahere Zedek? None of the above? And as I always ask the, pre the preschool kids, who doesn't know how to raise their hands? Okay. According to some of our earliest board minutes, and thank you, Carl, for the help, the name Shari Tzedek, I think that's how I usually say it, although at this point I'm not sure, was chosen at the very beginning of our congregation's existence 124 years ago. It was one of several possible names, although the others did not make it into those minutes. The spelling, beginning with S-C-H, is not debated, according to the minutes, nor is the pronunciation. And while the S-C-H does not, in fact, add an extra H sound for that shahere, it does show the strong influence of the members of our community who were of German descent. Those were the same ones who would ultimately sway the congregation to become reform, with the more traditional Polish and Eastern European Jews who, if they had more power, probably would have spelled our name without the C, eventually left the congregation and started Rodef Sholom, which is spelled with an S-H. For anyone who is interested, I'm happy to share an earlier draft of this sermon that contained a complete etymological discussion of the letters S-C-H, including how schedule can be pronounced schedule in England, how both come the, from the old French sedula, uh, Latin was schedula. For anyone who's not interested, you're welcome that that draft did not survive. <laughs> Before returning to our name, Shari Tzedek, I have one more survey for the congregation this evening. Give me just a moment. Now, full disclosure, I did share this same picture with my congregation in Pennsylvania three years ago at my first Kol Nidre there. Now, the sermon was not about Shari Tzedek and the name of the congregation, so it is a different sermon, but the picture was too good not to share with you as well. Once we have screens in the sanctuary, this will be much better, but who sees white and gold? And who sees black and blue? Ah. Now on the computer screen, it would have been much different. Who sees something somewhat in between, maybe a green or a purple, a chartreuse? 
I don't even know what chartreuse is, but it's my favorite <laughs> color name. Now, for any of you with a Facebook account or who were online in February 2015 or who happened to watch the morning talk shows at all during that time period, this is not the first time you're seeing a picture of this dress. By the way, for anyone watching on the live stream, if you can't see, or if you're listening to the podcast, and if you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, you should. If you put dress debate into your search engine of choice, you'll find a picture of the dress and you'll know what, what I'm talking about. This is an actual picture of an actual dress, which is in fact black and blue. So most of you got it right. But the lighting in the picture and the specific hue of the colors create the difference in perception by different people. Different surveys have had different results. It seems that most people, especially on a computer screen, do see white and gold, with a slightly smaller percentage seeing blue and black. But as I hope we've seen tonight, and I think we did, the same picture can look completely different to two different people standing right next to one another. And when the phenomenon was most popular, before the science behind it was understood, friends, colleagues, and couples were actually breaking into significant fights over it. If I'm looking at this picture, and I know I'm looking at a dress that's a certain color, you have to either be playing a trick on me or lying to me if you're telling me that you're seeing the exact same picture in a different color. Someone who saw the dress in one way couldn't understand how someone right next to them was seeing the exact same dress in a different way. Now there's a more recent example of the same phenomenon So who heard Laurel? Now that time I did hear Laurel. At the first service I heard Yanny. Who heard Yanny? That's all right. One more time. Oh. Did you change? No. All right, enough of that. Now, I don't know that the pronunciation of Shari Tzedek will ever reach the viral status of the dress or the Laurel Yanni clip. But there is a potential debate in our temple's name that to me is much more important than how we pronounce it. Sha'ar in Hebrew means gate with Sha'are, which is the actual Hebrew pronunciation, but I don't say it that way either. Sha'are makes it both plural and the first word of a two-word phrase. So Sha'are Tzedek is the gates of Tzedek. Wait. Now in defining Tzedek, things actually get a little less clear. Tzedek most commonly means justice as in the 20th verse of the 16th chapter of Deuteronomy, Tzedek, Tzedek, Tirdof, justice, justice shall you pursue. 
But justice or fairness can also mean being morally in the right or righteous. A tzaddik is a righteous person. And righteousness is most likely the translation of the word that was in the forefront of our founders' minds 124 years ago. Sha'arei tzedek, the gates of righteousness, comes from Psalm 118, words we've often sung to begin our high holy days together. Pitchuli sha'arei tzedek. And in the new JPS translation of the Tanakh, which was published in 1917, it was new when they named it, <laughs> we see the translation, open to me the gates of righteousness. I will enter into them. I will give thanks unto the Lord. But in the second edition of that new JPS translation of the Tanakh, which was published in 1985, they changed the translation. Open the gates of victory for me, that I may enter them and praise the Lord. Now I wonder if our synagogue's founders would have chosen the name Sharet Tzedek if the meaning had been gates of victory. But sure enough, if you look at the rest of the psalm, that latter translation makes sense. The psalm speaks of the other nations attempting to assail the Israelites, assuring that with God's protection, we will be victorious. All nations have beset me, the psalm reads. By the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them down. The Lord is my strength and might and has become my deliverance. The tents of the tzaddikim, which is translated in this version as the victorious, resound with joyous shouts of deliverance. The right hand of the Lord is triumphant. So now our question is not gold and white or black and blue. It isn't Yanni or Laurel, and it's not Sha'are, Share, Share, or Shehere. But it is about the way we approach all of the potential conflict in our lives. When we walk through the Sha'are Tzedek, when we walk through these gates, are we one who is concerned with being righteous, with doing the right thing? Or are we one who is concerned with winning? For the author of Psalm 118, righteous and victorious were synonymous. God backed the one who was just. And the Israelites would be victorious because they were in the right. But this is not the way the world always works. Oftentimes being righteous, doing the right thing, means losing something personal. Sally Krawcheck, now the CEO at Elevest, which is a company that tries to counter the gender wage gap with alternative investment strategies for women, was named the CEO of Smith Barney under Citibank in 2002. She climbed the ranks to CEO of Citi's entire wealth management business in 2007 just before the financial crisis of 2008. It was then that she went to the board of Citibank suggesting that they should reimburse some investors for the bank's poor investments. She writes as follows. At Smith Barney, we sold alternative investments that people thought were low risk and they weren't. I advocated for returning some of the client's money. I felt like it was the right thing to do and the positive business decision to demonstrate to clients that we would do right by them. 
It would strengthen the relationship. Eventually, the board sided with me, but I was fired a couple of months later. I knew I would get fired, she wrote. Now, this is where the story gets interesting, though because she was then hired by Bank of America in 2009 to head the wealth management division of their newly acquired Merrill Lynch. And guess what happened? As she tells the story, I was confronted with another crisis, a stable value fund that had lost its value. Stable value funds, she writes, are investments in 401ks that are akin to money market funds, in that they offer yield while looking to maintain a stable principal amount. The fund's sub-advisor had chased higher yields, a bet that failed during the financial crisis, thus permanently impairing the fund. One more thing to note, she writes, the biggest group of investors in this stable value fund were Walmart employees, not wealthy individuals. Krawcheck, having just been fired from one job for doing what she thought was just and right, was now put in the same position at her new job. Some would look at the picture and see blue and black. Investment is a risk, and stable never ensures stability. She had already lost one job, and this was time to take care of herself. Others would see gold and white. If she had seen something as the right thing to do before, it was the right thing to do again, even if it presented a personal risk. So what did she do? She went to the CEO of Bank of America suggesting that they put additional money into the fund, effectively reimbursing those who, in, who had invested into what they were told was a stable fund that because of the bank's missteps was not so stable. She did the exact same thing she had done before, what she viewed to be the right thing. This time, she was again listened to and not fired yet until a new CEO eliminated her position just two years later, even though the income of her division had increased by over 50%. Krawcheck saw the picture differently than her bosses did, and ultimately, Entering the gates of righteousness, as she perceived them, meant giving up entrance into the gates of victory. Doing the right thing had had negative consequences for her before, and they had the risk of the same consequences again. But ultimately, the internal victory that came from staying true to her values was more important than any risk of loss. There are times in which pursuing justice, trying to be righteous, justifies or even requires giving up victory. Other times, perhaps, giving up victory is the only way to be righteous. Now, I don't know that there were any divorces or estranged families or ruined friendships over the dress. But how often is this true over petty arguments? How often is it that we, even with those to whom we are closest, fight over a difference in perspective? I see something one way and you see it another. How often do two people look at the same picture but see it in a different way? And sometimes neither is able to understand how the other could possibly see things differently. The need to be right becomes more important than the desire to treat the other well.
And rather than talking about our differences, we stop talking, we insult, we push others down. How often are multiple gates in our lives closed because the need to win an argument becomes more important than doing the right thing or being understanding, more important than trying to be righteous. At a time in which our country is more divided than it ever has been, we have the power to try to ensure that our families are not. We have the power to ensure that Sha'are Sha'are Tzedek, the gates of this congregation, the gates of Sha'are Tzedek, are not torn apart by all the things that could divide us, but rather brought together by the quest for righteousness that unites us. We have the power to seek victory by not trying to be right, by having conversations with those with whom we disagree, to try to understand them so that we can enter the gates of righteousness together. There's one more aspect of differing perspectives that I want to discuss this evening, and it has nothing to do with politics, family squabbles, or even dresses. Sometimes we struggle not with others, but with ourselves, over how we view our life and our world. Sometimes we get stuck in a rut and find it difficult to escape. And as we join together on this Yom Kippur, while part of us for sure is concerned with the world's great problems, the other just wants to feel a little bit better than we did last year. And this too can often be a matter of seeing the gates that lie before us slightly differently. So in that spirit, there's one more viral internet sensation of 2015 that I want to share with you all this evening. It's a poem that was written by an 11th grader at the time, a young woman from a Hasidic community in Crown Heights named Hani Gorkin. She published her poem on a website where it was found by a British bar owner, printed and hung in his bar, photographed, then tweeted, retweeted, posted, and shared until it was viewed over a million times. The author herself was busy at summer camp while her poem became famous, but her view of changing perspective and looking at things a little bit differently than our first intuition changed the day and even the life of so many. Now, I know this is hard to see also. I'll post it on our Facebook page after Yom Kippur is over, but I'm going to read it for you as well. Today was the absolute worst day ever, and don't try to convince me that there's something good in every day, because when you take a closer look, this world is a pretty evil place. Even if some goodness does shine through once in a while, satisfaction and happiness don't last. And it's not true that it's all in the mind and heart because true happiness can be attained only if one's surroundings are good. It's not true that good exists. I'm sure you can agree that the reality creates my attitude. It's all beyond my control. And you'll never in a million years hear me say, today was a very good day. But then she enlightens us as she tells us to read the same poem, but this time from the bottom up in order to see how she really feels about her day. Today was a very good day, and you'll never in a million years hear me say it's all beyond my control. 
My attitude creates the reality. I'm sure you can agree that it's not true that good exists only if one's surroundings are good. True happiness can be attained because it's all in the mind and heart. And it's not true that satisfaction and happiness don't last. Some goodness does shine through once in a while, even if this world is a pretty evil place. Because when you take a closer look, there's something good in every day. And don't try to convince me that today was the absolute worst day ever. Throughout our High Holy Days, we talk about a different kind of gate. Sha'arei Shuva, the gates of repentance. Gates that are said to be wide open this evening, but tomorrow at our concluding service, Ne'ila will be said to be closing, locking even, as the word Ne'ila means. As we observe our High Holy Days, sitting in our chairs, not always thinking about the words we're reading, but thinking about our lives as we're supposed to do. We're all susceptible to think about openings in our lives that seem to be closed. The truth is, however, that when we try to be righteous, when we try to be open, those gates will often follow. Some perspectives cannot be changed, but others can. As we enter this new year, a year that has the potential to be divisive and full of conflict, not only on the political stage, but in our homes and in our lives as well. May we remember that even though others may see the world differently than we do, more often than not, their goals are the same, and they too are seeking righteousness in their own way. May we remember that things may not always be as they first appear, and when we find ourselves living what seems to be the worst day ever, May we have the strength to turn things over and look in a different way, to change our own perspective, and to see the holiness in every day. And ultimately, may the gates of righteousness be open to us all, allowing each of us to feel a sense of victory in knowing that the words that come out of our mouths, no matter how they are pronounced, are words of blessing, love, and peace.